welcome to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. How do we, as people of faith, show up and organize in the relentless chaos of our time? How do we interrogate privileges that benefit those of us who live in white skin and systematically disenfranchise those who don't, especially those of us who are Black? You may listen to these next two episodes and find yourself wondering why a podcast about faith and ecclesiology is spending so much time on criminal court cases and community organizing. We hope you'll explore that tension, along with the question, why do we as people of faith impose limits on God's justice and mercy? Welcome to season five. As you know, dear listeners, we started this podcast to celebrate and examine the relationships between people, our communities, and the ways that context shapes faith. But in the year and a half since we first launched this podcast, we are living in a new world. We've been in the midst of a global pandemic since late winter, and now rising up within our country is a new round of organizing strategy and action sparked by the most recent, shocking, continual, and yet unsurprising anti-Black violence of our time. We ask you to join us as we listen, engage, and pose tough questions to ourselves and to you, our listeners. We aim to prompt faithful action and invite imagination about a more faithful church and world that could emerge in the months and years to come. We welcome those of you who are newly joining us. We're glad you're here. There are real harms in being Black and not having spaces where you can retreat to that are mostly, if not exclusively, Black. The safe harbor that you feel when you are around people who look like you, who speak your language, you know, that you don't have to explain anything to them. You don't have to justify anything to them. They know what you are experiencing day in and day out. And you can just relax. You can just be yourself and let go of some of that baggage. And it's not easy to do that in white spaces. In today's episode, part two of our conversation with Kosha Tucker, staff attorney with the ACLU of Georgia's Smart Justice Campaign, an initiative to end mass incarceration and reduce racial disparities in the criminal justice system. Prior to joining the ACLU of Georgia, Kosha worked for six years as an attorney at the DeKalb County Public Defender's Office, where she represented children and adults charged with misdemeanor and felony offenses. Today, we highlight the ways that Black liberation movements have benefited Americans of every race, the false normativity of white spaces and churches, and the importance of a holistic faith that includes political advocacy. You said something earlier today that struck me that um, growing up in Lewisburg, near Lewisburg, that there were poor white families and poor black families, and even amidst um, low-income white America, poor white America, that the resources and um, fight for justice that has happened was through the advocacy work at the civil rights movement led by black people in America that directly benefits white poor people and all people, Mm -hmm. that black liberation and freedom for people to be holistically free and themselves. It doesn't seem like white America has the imagination for that or the appreciation for that or the drive and hunger for that um, for obvious reasons um, because we benefit for that system, but also just the lack of creative imagination and appreciation of the body and holistic well-being. As I think that white America insists upon this sort of evaluation of grind culture and to be productive means to be powerful or worthy Mm -hmm. in some ways um, and how limiting and fragile that is and 
how not valuable that is to anybody, really. It's just all about sort of winning. Yeah, you know, so in my town, it was poor and working poor communities. And there were no obvious distinctions between races. And and really, there were just two races represented in my town. It was black and white. And to the extent that there were other people of color, uh, they existed on the margins, unfortunately, because in my town, it was a agricultural small town. And we had a lot of migrant workers who were typically from Mexico. And they existed in these enclaves where I didn't interact with them. They didn't interact with me. And often I didn't even go to attend school with uh, the children in these enclaves. And so I just that that's my caveat of saying that mm-hmm. while my world was very black and white, there was further marginalization happening with yeah. other people of color to which yeah. I can't speak. But because there were no real obvious indicators of inequality in terms of how people's lives turned out, people in my town didn't always think of racism in the way that they should have. So if you were black in my town, chances are you weren't poor because you were black. You were poor because of sort of the systemic oppression of of kind of the working class. There were just no jobs. And so I think people in my town would have bucked, white people in my town would have bucked at the notion that any racism existed and your life didn't turn out the way it turned out because you're black. We all are poor. Mm-hmm. And it's a real shame that white, poor white people in particular, but I think white people in general don't have the ease or facility or language with the kind of movement work that happens in black communities because it, like you said, Sarah, I think that the movement work that black people have done since slavery has benefited all oppressed people, any oppressed group. And, you know, were it not for black people post-slavery fighting for an opportunity to, uh, to go to school, to have an education, because prior to that, it was only the white elites who could afford education, whose children were receiving an education. But were it not for black people fighting such that they're so that black children could um, receive an education, we wouldn't have the public education system that we know of today that everybody gets and benefits from, including the poor white people of the time uh, post-slavery. And it's interesting to see how poor white people in particular don't see the benefits that they have reaped from civil rights work and, and movements, justice movements, social justice movements by black people, all at the same time receiving a lot of unearned benefits too from white privilege. And I think that that gap there is, is I think right now, I'm, again, I'm cautiously optimistic, but mm-hmm. some of that gap feels like it's being bridged that people are appreciating the movement work and the activism uh, by black people toward moving us all toward a, a world that frankly, I mean, I think we all can agree that we want to live in a world that is um, much more community centered and service oriented and less punitive and carceral. Yes. Yes. You've alluded to the creativity and imagination that could be put forth to be thoughtful about that world and that justice system, et cetera, all the departments that we know and acknowledge are part of our our communities. Um, and we're asking for certain change legislatively, but um, wanting to have a broader conversation about what actually could be possible beyond that. And I wonder if you have a picture in mind or um, sort of 
What would a day look like when human problems occur and support is available in ways that would be much more thoughtful and holistically supportive than um, there's a problem, call the police. Mm -hmm. If you're black, this is what happens to you. If you're white, this is what does or doesn't happen to you. Yeah, so the other day I... I've I've been trying to find ways to cope with the current world mm-hmm. and typically I I run and that's a really healthy way to keep my mental health in check and the other day though my partner and I decided to take a stroll around the neighborhood and we poured ourselves wine mm-hmm. to to walk around the neighborhood and and kind of unwind from the day and I joked with him and said this is what defunding the police or divesting from police and investing in other alternatives could look like for people, which is you and I can walk around our neighborhood that does not have a police presence with wine, which seems harmless enough, and commit a misdemeanor mm-hmm. <laughs> and not get arrested. It feels very simple to kind of think about it that way, but I posted this on Facebook and I had friends of mine respond talking about the various misdemeanors that they also commit and uh, with impunity because they live in these neighborhoods that just aren't policed. Mm -hmm. And so one image I have in mind is a world where police officers are not running rampant in neighborhoods simply because they are black or simply because they are poor. And allowing people to live a normal life that will include mistakes yeah. that doesn't have to be corrected by the police and doesn't have to be corrected by criminal systems. And I joke with my friends who live in these typically white, typically wealthier neighborhoods where there is an absence of police, that that is what defunding looks like. That's what defunding the police looks like. That's what transforming our imagination to to recognize that there are alternatives to the criminal legal system looks like it already exists many people can just look around and it already exists so i would like to see a world where we aren't relying on the police to fix quote unquote fix these problems Mm -hmm. that quite frankly we've manufactured to be problems that they're only problems and certain people do them wow yeah that's that's the truth and i think that um and also and even thinking about the criminal legal system i've Again, many of the things that I saw that my clients were accused of committing were things I know white people do and that are things that I know white people do in the county. I, I practiced where I live. I live in DeKalb County. It's where I was a public defender. And so I saw all of the charges that people were getting labeled or saddled with in juvenile court, in misdemeanor court, traffic court, felony court. And I knew people personally who had committed the same crimes who would have never seen a courtroom or a jail cell. Do we really need police officers arresting people for shoplifting when the loss prevention officer at that retailer already caught the person and took Mm. the items from them? Do we need the extra layer of policing and conviction and jail time? I mean, I had a client charged with shoplifting where the judge sentenced him to five years in prison because he had shoplifted in the past. So I think, I mean, like you said, Sarah, the storytelling is important because I, I want to believe that people just don't know this is happening <laughs> in the world and that's why they're not outraged. But um, every Monday when I was a public defender and I represented adults, I would have these jail plea calendars where people would come in who had been arrested over the week or over the weekend with only misdemeanors. So we're talking criminal trespass because they showed up at a hotel where they told not to come back to or 
They broke a car window because they were mad. I mean, these are things, obviously, these are things that we want people to maybe mediate or, you know, have some kind of conflict resolution around. But it's certainly not something, and I think all of us who have seen people react out of anger or, or make a mistake or, you know, throw a something across a room or something can understand that, like, that's kind of regular human behavior. And um, if you can do it at your house or at your family gathering, if you're white, right, if you can do these things at your house and at your family gathering and people respond to you privately, you know, maybe you go talk to your pastor or maybe you, you have your uncle comes in and calms you down or whatever the response is in white homes. (laughs) Um, Because I'm like, I I don't even know what they are, but uh, whatever. (laughs) Time out. Right. Um, (laughs) Why can't we have them, you know, for for black folks? I don't know why only black people seem to be the ones who need intervention. And, you know, I want to push back on the notion that these behaviors need government intervention in any way. Mm -hmm. If white people are living their lives and functioning just fine without being social service to death or without being policed to death, then certainly black people can too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have a racially diverse family and have had some conversations. You and your partner, Jordan, obviously are showing up in professional and personal ways in the black lives matter movement and you and your family went to a protest recently. I saw mm-hmm. a picture of the four of you masked and um, smiling. And um, so the family and I, and, and my partner Jordan is white, and my niece and nephew, who Jordan and I are helping raise, are black. And we decided we had been in the house for this entire quarantine. We have not gone out into the real world. And so this is our first venture out into the world during COVID, but it was completely worth it. So it was a rally that supported public defenders who, in my opinion, and I think theirs too, defend black lives every day. And this rally was really to show support for the public defenders who are doing this work. Yeah. It was a sort of a tribute to George Floyd that included a moment of silence kneeling for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Mm. And we told the kids that this is what the rally was for. And we are a pretty politically conscious household. Yeah. We talk politics with the kids all the time. So they know they're aware of what's happening in the world. And one of the things that Javion, our 12 year old nephew mentioned, he never sees police officers in our neighborhood. Mm. And to compare his lived experience with what he knows is happening in other parts of the world and other parts of our state and even in other parts of our county was really jarring. And to talk about why that is, um, why don't we see police officers in our neighborhood, but they're everywhere, it seems, <laughs> on the news when we, when we hear about what's happening to young black men in America. And I think I'm doing what my dad did with me, which is teaching him lessons and I'm not even aware of it. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't even realize what I'm doing when I'm doing it. But one of the things that we have been intentional about here lately is talking to Javion about how he wants to show up in the world and how he feels about being usually the only black kid or one of the only black kids in very white spaces, including our church. Yeah. One of the conversations that Jordan in particular had with him because Jordan is so involved in the youth group at our church was what, how Javion felt about being a part of youth group 
at church and being the only black kid in youth group at church. It's something that I have brought up with Jordan on numerous occasions prior to this, you know, being mindful of the fact that we're putting him in these very white spaces. And while I, as an adult, can navigate them, we need to think about what it feels like for Javion because it's different. Yeah. And we are seriously considering, you know, what well, do we need to pull him from this very white space so that he doesn't grow up? I mean, there are real, and I could, we could have a whole other podcast about this, but there are real harms in being black and not having spaces where you can retreat to that are mostly, if not exclusively black. Mm -hmm. Um, The safe harbor that you feel when you are around people who look like you, who speak your language, and I don't mean English, I just mean you know that you don't have to explain anything to them you don't have to justify anything to them they know what you are experiencing day in and day out Mm -hmm. and you can just relax you can just be yourself and let go of some of that baggage and it's not easy to do that in white spaces for us to be a part of that rally and to be around other people largely people of color and um, but to still see white allies and um, to share that with the kids was really a powerful moment and um it's just ca- causing us to do some reevaluating uh, for how to move forward and in, in protecting Javion and protecting Javia and making sure they have a strong foundation and knowing who they are and not having to much like my dad did for me mm-hmm. not feeling like you have to perform for white for the white gaze um, oh. I'm curious if you you want to talk a little bit about the essentialism piece and like that we can trust that someone's experience is experience is true because that's their experience rather than having to verify it in some sort of a particular way in order to mm-hmm. care about it or validate it. And it seems to me that the burden consistently and when these conversations come up and also in the church in the Presbyterian Church USA, in a lot of mainline churches, this normative white space is under-examined by a lot of members of churches, certainly governing bodies of churches, even pastors um, that we would like, I think a lot of churches say, we would like to be a racially diverse church or an ethnically diverse church. That would be great. But what that means is we would love for black people to come and be white with us or like (laughs) do the things we do. And like, even, I mean, even things that the, the idea that people are not supposed to clap after songs that has really started okay yeah and I think if you're listening maybe you have a church where it's like the music director this is about worship and our children aren't performing for you so don't clap after they sing as if clapping or some sort of bodily expression and acknowledgement of being moved is not worship we have to sit silently like white people and not move our move our bodies even even as we say the psalms that say like clap your hands all you people but like you better have your arms at your side during the psalm it's just crazy we have all of these rules Mm -hmm. and definitions that we have come up with and i don't even know who i'm talking about when i say we (laughs) (laughs) sometimes I like to think of white supremacy as this like maniacal puppet master in the sky who is Mm -hmm. you know pulling the strings and we don't even realize we have strings attached to us Mm -hmm. and then the puppet master up there is just like laughing because he just stupidly and blindly you know let him pull the strings so I guess that's who the we is maybe it's the puppet master in the Mm -hmm. sky 
So we have all these rules and definitions for what we deem to be the correct way to do X, Y, Z. And it, it goes back to kind of my discussion on what I thought a good Christian was when I was growing up. This idea that like there are all these rules that say you have to do blank, blank, and blank. And if you don't do it that way, then you aren't the thing you say that you are. You have not met the definition of this mm. thing. So therefore you have no credibility or you can't right. even show up in the conversation. Right. Yeah. And yeah, you, you see it in the police killings. You see, I mean, I think you see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And when a person decides that I know that to be a blank, so to be a model citizen, to be mm-hmm. a law-abiding citizen, to be a Christian, to be a good person, looks like this X thing, X, Y, Z. Then when they hear something that deviates from that definition that they have created for themselves or that society has created, then they believe that that deviation makes it abnormal or incorrect or fails to meet the definition. And therefore, I'm going to distrust it or discount it. I don't want to get too philosophical, but when we decide that the value that somebody else has dictated is X, Y, or Z, when we hold that up to be a universal truth, then we get into all this trouble about, well, what happens when you encounter a thing or a person or a situation that goes against that universal truth? And instead of saying, well, maybe the universal truth was wrong, Mm. you know, maybe I got it wrong that this isn't the universal truth. Mm -hmm. Instead of doing that, we say, no, you are wrong because you haven't met the definition of this thing that I have decided is true or that Mm. someone has decided is true. Mm. So put your arms down and stop clapping and be quiet and don't say amen. And those are just the trappings of it all. It's like, if you do that, then you're not solemn enough. And if you're not solemn enough, then you're not really a Christian enough. And at my church growing up, we clapped and I mean, the singing part was my favorite part of church. Mm-hmm. When I, the first time I went to a Presbyterian church, which was a white church with my partner, I was like, why isn't anybody clapping? And why aren't we moving or swaying <laughs> with the music when we sing? And, you know, why is it so quiet? But then I also had my own beliefs for what I thought a real church going person did or was supposed like, I remember going to church with my partner and people were wearing jeans and I thought this isn't what you do in church you Mm -hmm. don't wear jeans to church Mm -hmm. you wear a dress if you're a girl and you wear pantyhose so yeah (laughs) I think that we we just get into a lot of trouble when we start feeling like we need to abide by these manufactured definitions of things instead of looking at the real substance or the meat of it and allowing people to have their life experiences and and not have to justify it to you just because it looks different than yours Mm -hmm. yeah I have a, you know, a question for those of us who are listening who are white. What is it that makes our, us keep our hands at our side and not encounter our bodies in the ways that our black siblings in church uh, so often experience in church? And what makes us afraid to do that? And what might be possible if we were to not expect people to join us in our spaces solely or even at all, but to go and experience church in black spaces, um, spaces where people of color are leading and setting the tone for worship itself. And even further, in in light of this conversation that was like, Kosha and I, of course, we have been talking a lot about systemic injustice. And like, we may be wondering as listeners, like, well, I thought this was a church podcast. And I thought Mm -hmm. this was about like worship and 
to be curious about that. And, and why would we talk about that as a church? And how does that, if at all, challenge some of our preconceived notions about the work of the church and the way the church shows up and the way the church acts and advocates and the ways in which we failed to do so, particularly white churches, and the ways in which, as you said, Kosha, defined like, this is what a Christian does. And then this is like a, quote, political thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's another sphere and that's for another time. Yeah, And the rally, Sarah, that we were at on Monday uh, for public defenders in defense of black lives was at a church. It was mm-hmm. at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Yeah. And there was something so powerful about that, that we had the strength of the church behind us. And it, and there were a variety of people of all kinds of faiths and, and not in attendance. And But there was still something very powerful about being on this kind of sacred ground with the support of the church, um, saying that this matters to us too. This yes. isn't just in this political sphere that we can't touch. Mm-hmm. We welcome you here. We stand with you. We also speak out against this kind of um, violence being perpetrated in black and brown bodies. Kasha, is there anything that you recommend? Yeah, yeah, recommendations for people who are listening who are like, I want to do something. I want to show up. I don't want to ignore this. And knowing that, like, are we going to get tired three weeks later? And then it was just, a, as you mentioned, in 2012, we thought this was going to be a turning point. And here mm-hmm. we are in 2020, and it's still happening. How do yeah. we keep the work going I would really encourage people to get plugged into community organizing or grassroots organizing that's happening already in your cities or in your counties. There are people who have been doing the work longer than I've been alive in community, often in partnership with churches, but even those who aren't, where you can just learn in a way that I think is much more human. So you can, I I certainly don't mean to suggest that you should not read. I think that reading as much as you can, particularly the 1619 project that the New York Times um, did is a is a great uh, resource. Mm-hmm. So continue to read all that you can in learning more about systemic racism and white supremacy. But I also just think the human connection that you make when you go out to these community events, especially if you can find one that's Black-led, Um, But you don't get to hide behind the kind of intellectualizing that sometimes happens when Mm. people talk about politics. It's very easy to pat yourself on the back for thinking the right things and believing the right things. It's way harder to put yourself out there and confront and sit in front of or talk to another human being who's saying, this is what happened to me or this is what happened to my brother. There's one group in particular in Atlanta that I think is wonderful that's led by formerly incarcerated black women. It's very hard to put yourself in a space or in a room with those people and hide behind anything. You have to confront your own biases and your assumptions or misconceptions, and you don't get to sort of smart your way out of it. Mm. So that's that's my big push is, is trying to encourage people to actually get out in their communities, use their bodies, put themselves in spaces that make them un- uncomfortable put themselves in spaces where maybe they're going to be one of the only white people to Mm -hmm. learn about what other people are experiencing and to challenge yourself. Kosha, thank you so much for the privilege of this conversation. Thank you for having me. I could talk on and on. So anytime you want me back. Thank you for listening to part two of our conversation with Kosha Tucker. If you are inspired to take concrete steps to address some of the social injustices we talked about in this season's podcast, one of the ways to act is to join and support the community network organization of formerly incarcerated women that Kosha mentioned in our podcast 
It's called Women on the Rise. You can start by visiting womenontherise.ga.org. We also commend to you the Matthew 25 vision and invitation of the Presbyterian Church USA, which seeks to unite congregations working to dismantle structural racism across our society. You can find out more about this and get involved at presbyterianmission.org slash Matthew 25. Thank you for listening to New Way, podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. We're online at newchurchnewway.org. Our producer is the fabulous Martha M. Sanders. You can see stories and photos from the humans who make up this movement on Instagram at 1001NWCPCUSA. Catch you next time.